1: And now, here's your host...
2: Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View podcast. Well, on today's podcast, I'm going to talk about the Land Pavilion at Epcot. So while considering a park that looked at science and technology, naturally, earth science was a large part of the plan. Agriculture was first considered to be the central theme of a pavilion. Later, it evolved into the concept of ecology and mining, which was kind of a natural fit, Early designs for the park had a focus on trees because they are most representative of the ecology and sort of brought back the agriculture piece as well. There were going to be biomes that depicted various earth themes. So that was a big part of what they had in mind. One of the specific designs that was considered called for a balloon ride among treetops. If you think back to the history of Circle Vision that I presented to you a while ago, one early use of the technology was a hot air balloon ride. I have to wonder if this is what this would have been like only like version 2.0 in a way another concept was a ride into the earth's core on a drilling platform and a third idea was an an arctic area that was proposed i have to say it was an amazing amalgamation of ideas for the space and how you represent ecology and earth science and so forth but i have to say the most interesting The idea they had was a giant rainforest with a treetop rotating restaurant that allowed you to look into the habitat. Now, I'd like to stop here for a moment and let you consider this. The land pavilion features a giant atrium. At various points in the development, that atrium might have been used for an arboretum or perhaps for this rainforest. The design of the building itself reflects that concept. But, of course, there's a little more to it. The WED designers planned for a building similar to this in the early days of planning for Epcot. Take a look at the high walls the next time you visit. The plan for this building was to be a hub for the people mover vehicle, and there were platforms on the walls that would have allowed for that. So kind of that concept was always there, even though it evolved to a large degree. But as the plans for the pavilion progressed, things evolved. The final concept was about a broad sense of the land, and the pavilion was dedicated to human civilization's interaction with the earth, including agriculture and travel. It was ready for opening day on October 1st, 1982, as part of phase one and the grand opening of what was then known as Epcot. As it was built, the land is a 24 hectare, that's about 2.5 million square foot facility. It explores how humans can both use the land for their benefit and how they can also destroy it. Future technology and better preserving the land is also explored in the pavilion, along with a focus on the celebration of the land itself. The land covers six acres, making it the largest Epcot pavilion. At the front of the pavilion sits a futuristic glass greenhouse. A smaller second glass dome used to be in front of it, but they've removed that since. Now, at first, it didn't look like the pavilion would have a sponsor, which meant that Disney might have to scale back its plans. But at some point around 1980, Kraft Foods signed on to be the title sponsor for a 10-year period, officially running from 1982 to 1992. Craft played a vital role in co-financing the everyday functions of the attractions, restaurants, and shops inside the pavilion. The pavilion's interior and exterior design features uh, had earth tones and exotic plant life. The designers decided to raise the level of the entry to the second floor with a long ramp leading up to the entrance. This was done to give it a prominence and make it feel as big as it actually was, and would allow guests to come in and see the rainforest and the balloons at the treetops. And that would allow you to see it before heading down to immerse yourself in it. The main glass structure you see from the outside is supposed to resemble a volcano central to the land formation and an integral part of the earth. Now I should also note there was a lot of thought put into the pavilion and experts in the field were brought in. For example, Carl Hodges led the land pavilion's scientific advisory board and was the founding director of the University of Arizona's environmental research lab. Now, as you start to enter the pavilion, the entry ramp passes a large mosaic mural on either side. Walt Paragoy designed the entrance mosaic for the Land Pavilion. He'd been a background artist for animated films including Sleeping Beauty, 101 Dalmatians, and The Sword in the Stone. But from 1977 to 83, as there, were more, as there was more need for talented artists to work on Epcot, he was recruited into WED and did work for the Land Pavilion and the original Journey into Imagination Pavilion at Epcot's Future World. Paraguay wanted a mosaic to adorn the outer walls and drew up a plan for it. Several people were involved in designing the actual concept for the mosaic, including designer Orlando Ferrante. He created a small-scale sample that they wanted to make into a larger mosaic. And this is where the story takes an interesting turn. The artist they chose to create the mosaic was Hans Scharf. In 1966, he did the mosaic work in New Orleans Square in Disneyland. Then in 1970, he and his wife and daughter did the impressive mural Inside the Breezeway of Cinderella Castle, showing the story of Cinderella. Now, as I said, Scharf was an interesting choice, and the reason for that is his own backstory. In short, the town he lived in in the 1930s was taken by the Nazis, and he was given a choice of jail or to join the cause. He opted to join and became an SS officer, working on the interrogation unit of the Luftwaffe, or the Air Corps, he would interrogate POW pilots and managed to do so without any of the so-called enhanced interrogation techniques, what might be known as torture, and had a lot of success, so much so that he became friends with some of the pilots and some kept in touch with him after the war. In the mid-1940s, he was brought to the U.S. to help with the trials of Nazis and went on to design some of the survival manuals still in use by the military. He never thought of himself as anything more than a simple man who could create art. Using bits of glass, marble, and stone, Scharf produced the mosaic art made popular in Mesopotamia 7,000 years ago. But despite his creation of mosaic works ranging from massive murals to small tables, he refused to call himself an artist. I'm a copyist, not a creative artist. That is my art, to copy, not to create anything. The Land Pavilion mosaic has approximately 150,000 individually cut and shaped pieces in 131 different colors. The pieces are made of marble, granite, slate, Byzantine glass, Venetian glass, real gold, mirror, ceramic, and pebbles. There's a mural on each side of the entrance, and they're mirror images of each other. So if you stand in the middle of the entrance and face the doors, you'll see the same image on either side flowing along, almost as if you were on a bridge and looked at the river below you. Both sides are flowing the same direction. To keep things moving quickly, One side was constructed by Hans and the other by his daughter, Monica. The things you'll see in the tiled mosaic depict lava flows and multiple gardens showing the vast diversity of plant life on our planet. And there are several hidden Mickeys contained within the design. Now, an intriguing thing about the mural is that Paraguay and Scharf were told that they could not put their names on the mosaic. That presented a problem of most guests not knowing who created it, but now you know who it was. I can tell you though, that while it's not signed, Scharf got clever and left something of his own in it. There is one subtlety about the mosaic. While it's almost perfectly mirrored down to the most minute detail, there is one tile different on each side. It's up near the entrance doors and you can find the one on the right side as you enter near the sign that says the land pavilion. One side has a ruby colored tile while the other has an emerald colored tile. Now, there are a lot of stories floating around about these two tiles. One suggests that the different tiles were placed by a Disney Imagineer and not by Sharf, and I can assure you that's not correct. Another suggests that the artist claims to never do the same piece twice and therefore placed one tile differently in each mural. I suppose that's possible, but given the fact that he's a copy artist, that doesn't really make sense because he's not creating unique art in that sense. So that feels more like a story to me. A third says that the different tiles represent the birthstones of the two artists that worked on the project. Except I Googled this a little bit and found their birth months, and those two stones, the emerald and the ruby, are neither of their birthdays. So that doesn't make sense either. So since it's not representative of the months they were born in, that can't be the case. So I have my own theory. It's a subtle nod to Scharf's time as an interrogator in the Luftwaffe. Since they were the air corps of the German military machine, Maybe it's related to airplanes. Now, airplanes, in order to know where the wingtips are to avoid collisions, have navigation lights on them. The one on the starboard or the right side is green and the one on the port side are red. So as you enter the pavilion, that's where the tile's relative position is. The green one, the emerald one, is on your right and the ruby one, the red one, is on your left. So in my theory, he's evoking the concept of airplanes in the pavilion about the land. So it kind of reflects his own history. That's my take. Which one is right? We'll probably never know. Um, Scharf died in the, I believe, late 1990s, and his daughter, Monica, uh, she has never said what it is, so we may never know. Now, before I move on to talk about the interior, there is one additional note about the mosaic I want to make. Somewhere along the way, someone made an error in the dimensions. Now, I have no idea if it was a design mistake, a construction change, or just a mismeasurement. But in any case, the mosaic itself was a little too big to make it fit, and they had to curve it into the ground. And that's why it extends into the walkway and in sort of an unusual and cool way. Look down as you pass it next time. It looks like a little un- it's a little unusual how far it extends into the ground, but it does actually fit thematically with the idea of being part of the earth rising up into the second floor. So in a way, it's kind of cool, even if it was a mistake. You know, and there's always the possibility that it was somewhat of an intentional mistake too, so that it would curve up from the floor. So Paraguay said of the mosaic at one point, it's 3,600 square feet. Every celebrity in the world has gone through Disneyland, I'm sure. But there's nothing obvious that sticks out as a particular work of art. This does. And I'd agree with him. This is a true work of art. Take some time the next time you're there and study the mosaic. Don't just run through and go to Sorin. Take a look at it and spend some time. It's really fascinating. As you enter the main doors, you're greeted with the giant atrium and a walkway that goes around it. Escalators and stairs are on the far side, meaning you have to walk through the pavilion to go downstairs to the bigger e-ticket items. It always seemed kind of stark and a little odd, but the design was intended to make you look at the trees that were never added. Walt Paraguay also designed the atrium area. He said of the area, for the land pavilion, I designed the entryway and the 27 foot tall, 360 degree sky inside. I designed the three solid balloons that would go up and down with different foods. I designed the fountain below the balloons But I didn't get my way with the fountain. Jim Sarno sculpted it. Beautiful. He told me he left because the fountain wasn't finished with the top the way I designed it. I intended that it be all different foods, not only sculpted but painted. So the center of the space is an abstract representation of the sky with blue background and long golden sweeps of sunshine with these balloons around it. On the upper level, there was a show called Symbiosis in the Harvest Theater. This 18-minute film explored technological progress in the environment and the partnership between people and the land. It discussed both the positive and negative aspects of human relationships with the land. I haven't covered this show previously in a podcast, but I'll get to it soon. There was also a restaurant called The Good Turn, which was the revolving restaurant they initially conceived. And because of the design of the Living with the Land ride, you do look down into the rainforest, among other vistas that you have in the biomes. If you look up just above the revolving restaurant, you'll see some windows that are part of the sponsor lounge where craft employees could visit as the title sponsor. Now moving downstairs, you had four main areas. Off to the right, oriented as you enter the pavilion, was Listen to the Land. You can hear the original ride audio with the live narrator on episode 319 of my show. The tour is aboard a boat and goes through several areas, each known as a biome, that represents a specific ecological area. Remember that many things Disney draws up do make it somehow, somewhere. So this was part of the original design, and they were able to incorporate it into the ride. Within the pavilion itself, you start with a scene of a deciduous forest in the middle of a thunderstorm, illustrating how the forces that shape the land can appear destructive to us. The boat then sails through artificial biomes representing a tropical rainforest, a desert, and the American prairie. You then move to the American farm complete with a farmhouse and barking dog and you go through the barn to head out into the outside part that's actually the greenhouse. By the way, some of the audio-animatronic figures in this section were originally created for the never-built Magic Kingdom attraction, Western Western River Expedition. The biomes feature sound and lighting effects in addition to the heat, wind, and mist to simulate real conditions. The boats float through a small theater that illustrates the relationship between humans and the environment, and the ways we have been modifying the land to better serve our purposes. Then the boat heads out of the main building and into a series of greenhouses and growing areas. You could think of them as sort of experimental areas. These include the tropics greenhouse, where we see crops such as rice, sugarcane, peanuts, cacao, and bananas grown under the 60-foot dome. These crops can be found in Southeast Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the United States. Next, you move to the AquaCell, where we see crops that include fish, alligators, catfish, tilapia, sunshine, bass, and the American eel. Then we move to the temperate greenhouse, featuring the concepts and technologies of sustainable agriculture, including intercropping, integrated pest management, and specialized irrigation systems that reduced waste and increased crop production. Next is the production greenhouse, where tons of tomatoes, peppers, lettuce, and other vegetables are grown for use in the land's Garden Grill restaurant and other Epcot restaurants. Land scientists utilize growing systems that are kinder to the environment and improve productivity. The creative house is the final one you go through, and that shows an imaginative ways to grow crops without soil, hanging in the air, even on a space station. USDA scientists currently are working with the land to develop fruit with a longer shelf life.
3: Just make believe You're a tiny little seed A tiny little seed that's reaching up To meet your need With the right amount of faith And the right amount of earth, You'll grow to see the sunshine On your day of birth Let's listen to the land we all love Nature's plan will shine upon. Listen to the land Listen to the land we all love Nature's plan will shine upon. Listen to the land, listen to the land When springtime comes, how can you tell? The air is always filled with orange blossom smell Come summertime, the warmest sunshine And the world is full of flowers and good melons Let's listen to the land we all
1: love. Nature's plan will shine upon.
3: Listen to the land, listen to the land. Let's listen to the land we all love. Nature's plan will shine upon. Listen to the land, listen to the land. When autumn falls, it's a harvest show. With north winds blowing, all the seeds that it must sow. Come winter time, the rain must fall. Till once again the new year and the springtime call. Let's listen to the land we all love. Nature's plan will shine upon. Listen to the land. Listen to the land. Let's listen to the land we all love. Nature's plan will shine upon. Listen to the land Listen to the land The seasons come And the seasons go Nature knows everything That it must know The earth and man Can be good friends Let's listen so our harvest time Will never end Let's listen to the land We all love Nature's plan will shine and hope. Listen to the land, listen to the land. Let's listen to the land we all love. Nature's plan will shine and Listen to the land, listen to the land. Just make believe you're a tiny little seed. A tiny little seed that's reaching up.
2: To now, the, on the ride itself, there were 13 boats on the ride, each seating about 40 guests. Since the ride lasted about 15 minutes, that meant that it could accommodate about 2,400 guests per hour. And returning to the pavilion itself, on the left side on the first floor, and that's again oriented as you enter the pavilion, was the Kitchen Cabaret. This was a fun look at nutrition and will always be known for the oh-so-Disney classic Veggie Veggie Fruits fruit song. Like You can hear the full show on episode 62 of my podcast. In the atrium area and in the middle was a seating area for the food court and the balloons and the sculpture. And directly below where you enter was the food court. Originally, it was called the farmer's market and had several stations that included ice cream, the potato store, pasta, soup and salad, and barbecue. And as I mentioned before, some of the food that was served there was grown in the greenhouses in the back. Now, tucked in between the Kitchen Cabaret and Listen to the Land is a kiosk from where the Behind the Seeds tour departs. Originally, it was called Tomorrow's Harvest, uh, or the Harvest Tour. On the walking tour, guests would be guided by members of the land's professional agriculture staff through the greenhouses. The name changed to the Greenhouse Tours in 1993 and became the uh, Behind the Seeds Tour in 1996. The tour is an up-close look at the four greenhouses that are part of the Living with the Land attraction. Behind the Seeds is led by a member of the Epcot science team. Highlights include a sensory challenge with herbs and spices, a ladybug release, vegetable taste test, fish feeding, sprouting a seed in your pocket to bring home, latest gardening tips, seeing how exotic crops and gigantic fruits and veggies are grown without soil. And then when 1993 came and Kraft sponsorship was up, it was time for a change. Nestle signed on as the new title sponsor for the next 10 years of Epcot. But wanting to put their own stamp on the pavilion, a lot of things were updated. The pavilion, itself was co- the pavilion itself was cosmetically freshened, while some of the original design elements remained. The addition of more vibrant colors and fabrics to the various restaurants and shops gave the pavilion a more modern and refreshed look. The names of certain shops, restaurants, and attractions also changed during this time. Two more balloons were also added to the atrium, bringing the total to five. So when you walk in today, you'll see five balloons suspended where there were originally only three. And their purpose also changed. Now they're not representing foods that are brought, but they're representing the four seasons. And the fifth balloon in the center represents Earth. So for what that's worth, I think it's a little bit weaker than the original concept of representing how food is is grown. But I think it kind of works in a way. Now, large green abstract tree trunks were added to the building's columns at this point, too, to kind of make you think more about the original concept of having a rainforest or an arboretum in the middle. So by late 1993, the makeover was mostly done. The exception was Symbiosis, which reopened in 1995, replaced by The Circle of Life, a widescreen movie about the environment and our relationship with the land, hosted by the stars of The Lion King. All set to build Hakuna Matata Vacation Resort, Pumbaa and Timon are damming rivers and cutting down trees. Simba steps in to remind them, and us, to take care of our environment. The Circle of Life is about an 18-minute film that shows many of the dangers facing the environment and the responsibility people have to take to preserve the land. Now, I'll cover this one in a future podcast as well. Also changed, Listen to the Land became Living with the Land, and only subtle changes were made initially. Even the song sounded the same, even though they changed the word to living with the land instead of listening to the land. But it was, the, it was essentially the same thing for a period of time. Now you can hear living with the land in episode 67 of my podcast. Also changed, the Kitchen Cabaret Review. It was closed and reopened as Food Rocks. It featured some of the elements from the original show, with an updated presentation intended to be more modern and appealing to younger audiences. I've never done a podcast about this version of this show, but I'll have to do so in the not-too-distant future. And so the pavilion existed for about the 10 years that were there. But in 2003, Nestle renewed its sponsorship of the land. However, it was under the agreement that Nestle would oversee its own refurbishment to both the interior and the exterior of the pavilion. This was so they could have more control and be a little bit more uh, evocative of the things they wanted to show you, so they could kind of promote their own products. So between 2004 and 5, the pavilion underwent its second major refurbishment. It received another new color scheme featuring a vibrant section of white, yellow, and green. New foliage was added to complement the existing greenery. The walkways and stroller parking at the pavilion's entrance were redefined and widened. All of the carpeting was replaced. The pavilion signage was updated incorporating a new color scheme, new typography, and a modernized logo. Also, the main food court was completely redesigned. It became the sunshine seasons and included... New locations that were completely different. It has the Asian shop, which has a variety of noodles and bowls and stir fries. The sandwich shop, which, as you might expect, sold sandwiches. The soup and salad shop, a variety of soups and salad. The wood-fired grill shop, which has rotisserie chicken, beef, and fish. The bakery, which, of course, includes Nestle Toll House cookies, ice cream, and and other offerings. And then a breakfast station uh, that offers pastries and combos that includes eggs and uh, choice of bacon or sausage and a drink. And then at this time, Living to the Land was converted to a recorded audio tour rather than having a live narrator. Mike Brassel was hired to do the narration. You may also recognize his voice from the Tomorrowland Transit Authority. But the major thing that happened was a significant change to the area that housed Food Rocks. And that was the addition of Soren Over California. (laughs) And the music you're hearing is from the Soren attraction. It was a score that was written by Jerry Goldsmith. Jerry Goldsmith uh, was a composer uh, known for many different movies over the years, some of which were Disney movies, but most of which are just uh, features that uh, that were com- came out of Hollywood. He was a very fascinating composer. He came up with the idea for the uh, for the score and came up with the original concept of it. And then Bruce Broughton uh, took the score and broke it down into something that was a little bit more. Uh, effective for this particular attraction. So he's an American orchestral composer of television and film uh, who's done a number of different things and uh, worked for Disney for a long period of time for an, on a number of different Disney productions. So it kind of makes sense. So you're hearing the, the, the combination of both that uh, Jerry Goldsmith put together as the original score and that Bruce Broughton arranged uh, for this particular attraction. Now here's a little nugget for you. While some people think the Food Rock set was demolished, it wasn't. The seating area was removed, but the set remains in place, hidden behind the wall in the exit way of Soren. Now, Soren itself was a remarkable achievement in immersive film. It's so simple and yet so amazingly sophisticated. You sit on a bench that's lifted by a clever cantilever, so you feel like you're flying. Simulating the experience of hang gliding over various landscapes, Soren's massive movie screens and ride mechanics require the construction of a large physical addition to the pavilion itself, three large warehouses that each house a theater. Now, of course, Patrick Warburton can be seen as your host before you ride. Warburton's most iconic role was Elaine's boyfriend Putty on the TV show Seinfeld.
0: Hello and welcome to Soaring. My name is Patrick and I'll be your chief flight attendant today. We'll be getting boarding in a few minutes, but first I'd like to acquaint you with some important safety information. When the doors to your flight open, please take a seat and store all carry-on items in the under compartment. This includes cameras, purses, hats, and of course, these little beauties. Next, fasten your seat belts, inserting them into the buckle on your right. If smaller aviators don't measure up to the height indicator on the seat, just put the belt through the loop in the center strap before buckling. That's us work, pal. Soon you will be airborne. So if you or your little aviators have a fear of flying or of heights, you might want to wait for your party at the arrival gate. Okay, let's review. Hey, guys, I'll be back when the am to get on. Help, on safety, strike. fear of heights, keep your hands and arms inside at all times.
3: Yeah, have a nice one.
2: The land officially reopened on May 5th, 2005, which coincided with Disney's Happiest Celebration on Earth campaign. While the land as a pavilion has somewhat changed, its purpose has not to this point, and it remains a positive and serious experience featuring elements from all three of its phases, allowing today's guests to experience all the land has to offer. After five years, Nestle pulled out of the sponsorship, leaving the land without a sponsor. On July 29, 2011, Chiquita signed on as the new title sponsor for, for the ride, Living with the Land. However, it's not mentioned in the in-ride audio by the narrator, nor does it have a VIP lounge in the land building itself. Now, something else that I've always found a little odd is that there is only one small gift shop in the entire pavilion. The, the pavilion's the largest one in all of Epcot, and there's only one small gift shop, and it's down by where Sorin is. That's kind of un-Disney-like in a way and stands out for that reason. Now, in addition to being an entertainment venue, the land is also a demonstration, production, and research facility at 43,000 square feet or about 0. 0.4 hectares of the pavilion are de- dedicated to experimental horticulture techniques, hydroponics, irrigation methods, integrated pest management, and so forth. A couple of fac- fast facts for you. It, the capacity of the land pavilion is 3,600 people. Its size is 253,780 square feet, or about 24,000 square meters, and that's roughly the size of Fantasyland in the Magic Kingdom. So if we take a look at the Epcot Field Guide and look at the land, a couple of attraction facts. The Growing Areas in the Living with the Land Boat Ride showcase important agricultural crops, tools, and technologies. For example, guests on the boat ride learn about sustainable agriculture, the use of agricultural practices which seek to satisfy human food and fiber needs, while minimizing harm to the land and water resources. Careful management of resources is a key component of sustainable agriculture. In the Land Pavilion, for example, we conduct research to determine precisely the amount of water and fertilizer that each crop requires. Computer-controlled devices provide the minimum required so that these resources are used efficiently. The LAND's Integrated Pest Management System program uses several different methods to control pests, such as careful sanitation, exclusion of pests from the greenhouses, use of the disease-resistant plants, and biological control. By making use of several control methods in IPM, pesticides are often considerably reduced, in many cases saving money as well as safeguarding the environment. They have a technology quiz, What are the five things that plants need to grow? And the answer is water, nutrients, carbon dioxide from air, light, and support. Number two, what is hydroponics? Hydroponics is growing plants without soil. The nutrients normally found in soil are dissolved in water and provided to the plant roots. Three, what is biotechnology? Biotechnology is a collection of techniques at the molecular or gene level that are used to make improvements in plants. For example, at the land, we are genetically engineering peanuts for enhanced oilseed nutrition and pest resistance. 4. What is aquaculture? Aquaculture is growing the fish and other aquatic animals and plants in a controlled environment. Number 5. How are computers used in greenhouse agriculture? Computers are used to control the environmental conditions, thereby helping growers to, A, control the time of flowering in certain crops, B, reduce energy costs, and C, avoid conditions which promote development of plant diseases. They're also used to determine the need for irrigation to control and to control irrigation and many other processes. Six, what is biological pest control? Biological control is the use of the pest's natural enemies to keep it under control. The natural enemies include predators, parasites, and pathogens. Seven, what is NASA's CELSS program? NASA's Controlled Ecological Life Support System program seeks to develop a space agriculture system that will use plants to regenerate the atmosphere and the water, as well as produce food in support of a space habitat. And finally, number eight, what is crop rotation and why is it used? Crop rotation is a technique in which different crops are grown in successive seasons or years. This replenishes the soil and helps control pests. There's also a little section on earthly matters. Many of the world's most important food crops are showcased in the land. These include wheat, corn, rice, sweet potatoes, sorghum, coconut, and cassava, a root crop that's widely eaten in the tropics. Each year, over one-third of the world's food is destroyed by insect, pests, plant diseases, and weeds. The Food Guide Pyramid recommends daily food choices as follows. Bread, rice, dry beans, cereal, and pasta, 6 to 11 servings. Vegetables, 3 to 5 servings. Fruit, 2 to 4 servings. Milk, yogurt, and cheese, 2 to 3 servings. Meat, poultry, fish, eggs, and nuts, 2 to 3 servings. And fats, oils, and sweets, use sparingly. And then there's a quote in here from Theodore Roosevelt. Teddy said, It's safe to say that the prosperity of our people depends directly on the energy and intelligence with which our natural resources are used. Great quote. So there you go. That is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now.
1: Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading